this whole perception of the physician, like, come on, me, there's so many people that need more help than quote unquote, I do. That's one of my flaws. I always try to compare misery. That's my, I'm like, well, at least I'm not as miserable as this, or my trauma cannot be as bad as this person because they're going through. So I would kind of negate my own feelings. And this film was the mirror, is the mirror that I particularly needed to see that the person I ultimately thought I was, who I want to be, was being derailed, like full speed off the track and like off a cliff fast. I'm Holly Whitaker. And I'm Emily McDowell. And this is Quitted, a podcast about quitting. That was more a beat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And our first attempt to this, we were talking about the Gilded Age, but maybe now that we have another chance at this, let's not expose people to talking about the Gilded Age. I think the fascinating <laughs> thing, though, is that your partner, Daniel, and I are both into it and period. Well, not into it, just period dramas. Period dramas. And I could not be less interested in period dramas, um, which is a very controversial opinion in my house. It's a controversial opinion, period. Yeah, I think period. I mean, a lot. I mean, given the number of period dramas out there, Mm -hmm. like, I think it is a pretty controversial opinion. Mm -hmm. But yes, I wish, I wish that I could get into them, but I am like, just give me present day. And it's not that I don't like history. It's not that I don't care about history. It's just there's something about it. Uh, hmm. That I struggle with. Anyway, hmm. have you seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire? No, <laughs> Gentleman Jack. Like what I like is there's actually a lot of really just even queer... these names. I'm like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is a lot of really queer period dramas, um, mm, or at least yes. there's there's enough. And I don't know. I mean, anyway, I find period dramas, all of them, to be extremely satisfying and. I also am into Gilded Age, which even people that are into period dramas, you know, draw a line in the sand and don't like. Um, it was the down, like the down, the the downtown. I always say downtown, the Downton Abbey folks. It's like the American Downton Abbey, and somehow they just fucked it up. But I feel that like it is a refreshing watch. Um. Anyway, I love it. I'll never watch it, but I love I love this journey for you. It's so weird because I really feel like you're the kind of person that would be into it. Like I feel like you maybe went to like I know you know I rent know. fairs and shit. Like no, I feel like I, you I have didn't. that vibe. I will say it's funny because people. <laughs> so I have to say that when I was online dating, the vast majority of attention that I got was from rent fair guys. Rent fair men loved me. Uh, huh. Loved me uh, in based on the evidence. And it was such a weird, like, I was like, what about me? Like, what about my profile? Like, there is nothing I'm not wearing, like a a lace up front with a bosom, you know, I'm not eating a turkey leg in any of these pictures. I don't talk about, you know, my love for, I know, I think it is my vibe. It is Um, your vibe and it's not my vibe. I'm like, it's, it's very, very, very weird, but it does feel like you at some point would have made your own costumes and like, I don't know, named your cat, I never did. (laughs) (laughs) 
you, you are not the first person to make that assumption. And it's so funny mm-hmm. because it actually couldn't be further from the truth. So okay. we contain well, multitudes. Respect. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to talk real quick about this. We are interviewing Dr. Natalie Duget, who was the star of a documentary on COVID-19 called The First Wave. They filmed her at uh, one of the hardest hit New York hospitals, being a medical doctor. And then I saw that movie in a theater when it um, premiered. And she announced she was there, part of the panel, and she announced that she had stopped being, uh, that she'd quit her job. And so before we even had a podcast, I think she was my first. And she is lovely and I can't wait for you to meet her and and hear about her. Do you want to talk really quick about, um, you know, being (laughs) the the quiet one? The fact that I'm, the fact that I'm invisible on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, what's funny is like this, this podcast, this interview, I didn't really talk a lot and, it's fine. It's no big deal. But it was something that and then Holly and I talked about it afterwards. And this is just us kind of trying to find our rhythm. I mean, one of the things that is hard about podcasting that I didn't realize is that you have to talk. Is that when you, you know, when you have a co <laughs> well, it's like, who <laughs> knew that I was going to have to talk? I no, mean, I'm what? Kidding. No, I'm no, kidding. I'm being a dick. When you have two people, right? Like when you have a co host. Yeah. It's sometimes hard to know, like, are you going to jump in? Are you going to jump in? You know, my style is much more sort of, I mean, Holly is very nice by saying that it's thoughtful. I mean, a lot of it is honestly like perimenopausal brain fog where (laughs) it takes me a minute to formulate things. Um, And she is much quicker than me. And it's like, we're still learning each other's like, when you're pausing, does it mean that you're formulating a thought? Or does it mean that you want me to talk? Or anyway, so just the way that this one shook out, there's not a lot of me in it. Just uh, FYI, but like, no big deal. Well, I mean, I think, and I feel terrible about it. And I think like, because my previous experience was, and we're just talking about it. We're just talking, we're just having a conversation here because this is like that conversation we had right after this episode where I'm bringing into it also my shame of, you know, I was, I had a podcast before with one of my best friends at the time and I was an interrupting cow, you know, and I was just, during the, that time, it really was this idea. There was also the vibe that Laura and I had going on, but there was also just this idea of like what I had to say was really important and I needed to get it out. I needed to be the one to say the thing. And I don't feel that way here at all. Like, I don't care if you take the good, if you take the good question or if I have the good, it, like that's not, it's not driven by this need to be the smart one, Mm-mm. but it still is. I think I do work with like the, there are long pregnant pauses and I, I, don't I'm not being generous. I actually really appreciate your like your thoughtfulness. I mean that. And also sometimes I don't know if we just stop talking and or if you're thinking about the next thing to say. It's true and it will happen to fucking me. I am sure when I get menopause, which is apparently starting to happen, but like so the point is that I am not coming at it with the same uh ego energy that I had. But I, um, ugh, I do, I do, I like talking and I interrupt still, or I'm well, the and that's what makes something. you good at this, you know? I mean, that's one of the things that makes you really good at what you're doing and really good at hosting this. So, and it's know. also you being and you being slower is what makes you really good, to be honest. Well, thanks. I mean, I think that we have complementary differences that <laughs> are do. that are good for that are good. <laughs> 
for this. Well, it used to me down and I speed you up because I did notice mm-hmm. we just recorded with Africa Brooke. We just got off that and you were you were right in there. You were, you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have those moments of wondering, you know, if I don't say <laughs> something, are we just going to all sit here? Out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think well, yeah. anyway, I, that, we're learning, you know, we're learning as we this, go. That's right. Is because I think we want to be really transparent with this is like, this is really fucking hard working with other people's hard, but I love it. Like I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, I love doing mm-hmm. this with you. And yes, I would not want to do this alone and I would not want to do this with someone else. I want to do it with you. <laughs> so, you know, we're just, we're learning. And part of why I like doing this podcast is because it's making me learn stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and learning stuff is fun. Learning stuff is fun. Sometimes it's hard, but it's rewarding. So it is. with that, Here's um, Natalie. Oh, God, no. I did it. I just uh, – leave that in, Adam. I just fucking did it. I Did you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> With that, this is a self-produced podcast. We produce this podcast ourselves and with the financial help of our listeners, which happens through our Patreon community. So if you enjoy this podcast and if you would like to support us and become a part of making it, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash quitted. We are also available on all podcast platforms and we appreciate all of your shares and ratings and reviews and anything that you do that really helps get this podcast in front of people. We are just kind of on our own here for the moment, making this thing. And so you guys are such a big part of getting it into the world. And we appreciate you. Dr. Natalie Duget, welcome to Quitted. I have been looking forward to this interview since I saw the documentary that you were in. And I think I asked you the same day I saw it, if you would go on this podcast months ago. <laughs> this podcast that didn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> we have a potential podcast. We'd like you to come on. Um, so welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's a big deal. I can't thank you ladies enough for even invited me to do such a thing because I was like, sure, sign me up. I don't even know <laughs> what I was signed up for, but I, so I kind of, I was like, oh my God, Holly, I'm like, oh my gosh. Cause I didn't know, no offense. I didn't know who you were prior to you hitting me up. But then I'm like, the Instagram and me went down the rabbit hole and I'm like, <laughs> I love her already. <laughs> uh, it's really, it's mutual. It's big. I want everyone to see the first wave for a lot of reasons, but I also am very interested in everyone knowing you. So let's just start with this. I went to the screening of the first wave and I think that you, your storyline is so compelling. So this was a screening at Upstate Films. It was in Sagartes. And at the end, I knew the director would be there, but I had no idea that the people that you come to love, like you or Ahmed, were going to be there at the end of it. So before we get into talking about your story, because this is really about your story, but I do want to talk about the documentary so we can kind of set that up. The documentary is called The First Wave. It is a documentary that follows around patients uh, healthcare providers and essential workers at Long Island Jewish Medical Center from March 2020 to June 2020. 
and is has full access. I mean, you see people die, you see people be resuscitated, you see people, you know, healed and released. The crew is with you. You're you're a medical doctor. The crew is with you uh, at the hospital doing your job, but also in your car or at your home. Can you just talk a bit about what the documentary is and and give people just an idea of why it exists and and why it's important and what it's about? So the first wave actually is directed by the Oscar-nominated, Emmy Award-winning Matthew Heineman, who I actually didn't know who that was prior to even signing up for the documentary. But given in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of us did not know what to anticipate, what to expect. A lot of information was being disseminated, mainly from like politicians Mm -hmm. or um, administrative figures or researchers, but not necessarily healthcare providers who are quote unquote on the front lines or engaged in the, the direct care of patients in hospitals. And we didn't know per se that New York City would be the epicenter early on in the this pandemic. But Matthew and his team wanted, that's just his forte, to get the perspective of the individuals really involved in this story, per se, and our perspective. So he decided to follow myself, who's more like the physician perspective, um, in a way. Um, You have patients who were significantly infected by COVID-19 themselves, and as well as the family perspective and how their life has been turned upside down. So um, it really gave, I guess, the humanistic aspect of what going through this pandemic is and was like, particularly at that time, when you take out the statistics. It allows for us, the the public, um, even healthcare workers too, to see the many sides of COVID-19 and the pandemic and what isolation and all that we went through can do to all of us. And it allows for that relatability that I think so many people didn't get because no one knew what was going on in the hospitals. Yeah. I mean, that was what struck me the most about it from the the first five seconds in was this was a perspective that we did not see. It, you know, there were not news crews in the hospitals for obvious reasons. And so the general public didn't have this awareness and wasn't able to put this really human face on what was happening. And this is why I, I think it's so important for people to see this film is because it humanizes it in a way that we just didn't get access to. Yeah. Exactly. Like, and even myself, when trying to explain the dynamic of what was going on in the hospitals to like my family members or people close to me who, even physician friends that I have who didn't work in the hospital, like, they couldn't grasp, honestly, the gravity, the terror that a lot of us were feeling because it was just so hard to articulate because we've never been through some, something like this. Right. It's like the word unprecedented means nothing anymore because we just yeah. hear it so many times that like, what is what is that now? You know? Yeah. And I think also the way it connected, I think the the piece of it too, of just like being able to see 
the all sides of it strung together, like what it looks like when a nurse is bedside holding up a phone, like you talking about how patients didn't even have phone chargers to be able to connect with their families, like just these like very, very, very specific details of what the full picture is like. And that camera crew, I mean, it, it was a brilliant film just because I don't think that anyone had that full like 360 view of what it was actually doing and what was actually happening at that time. It made it feel so different for me. I was in New York City. I left. I was able to leave the city. I'm not an essential worker. I stayed by myself, you know, and with my cat, completely isolated from it. It was a very, very different experience. And I think for me, going to see that, and this is this is kind of one of the, the things I want to get to, which is I was just at a brunch right before we started doing this. And I said I had to go because I was going to do this interview. And then someone asked about what? And I said, and I told them about you. And I told them about the documentary. And uh, there was a guy there that said, um, I'm not ready to see a film about COVID yet, which I think everyone feels, right? Like we're so exhausted and we're so over it. But this is also not just a film about COVID. This is, I think, a film that everybody needs to see because of, to me, what it did was it allowed me to process something that affected me and that was affecting people around me in a way that I hadn't been able to have any kind of emotional reaction to. I mean, from your like from your perspective, is that like, can you talk a little bit about that? And like also just from your perspective of having lived it, you just said like, you know, you had to stop watching it. Yeah. So trust me, no one doesn't want to hear about COVID more than me <laughs> and a lot of us who've been working through this consistently. Trust me. And I really want people to know the first way this documentary, COVID, yes, it is a topic, but it's not the theme. Yeah. I think the mm-hmm. theme is human connection, interaction, and the some of the direction healthcare was heading or is heading or how it is, as well as a lot of the societal and systemic issues that ultimately impact our health, our stress level, our happiness, our sense of fulfillment, our sense of connection. I think that is something I want people to know. Yes, COVID is the major topic, but it's not the underlying theme. It's not the true essence of this film because in the beginning of the pandemic, it was such, I felt I was living one big contradictory kind of thing because I live in one of the major cities in the world, but felt the most isolated. I'm in one of the most esteemed academic centers, but yet I felt at times I was in a developing country because of the lack of resources I was able to give my patients. I go into, I, so I wake up from my bed and I feel like I'm on a deserted island when, because everything was shut down in New York City and like literally the streets were empty. And typically when I commuted prior to the pandemic, the traffic, I was in traffic for like almost 50 minutes. Yeah. And during the pandemic, I could get to speeding. No cop was around. 17 minutes. And then I would get in the minute I stepped foot in the hospital, it kind of felt like the apocalypse at times. And then there really wasn't anyone to 
talk to per se, because I really didn't want to make my family more worried than what they already were. And yet you don't want to continue traumatizing your colleagues because they're feeling the same thing that we are. So it was, it was tough kind of going through that. And for me, I, like I said, this film is a blessing in a way, particularly to me, because I think I probably would have thought I can still go on. Mm -hmm. Like, as is. Like, I would try to do that out of sight, out of mind. And I saw that it was it was slowly not working, even before the film came out, even before I knew when the film was coming out. But the type A personality to some degree and this whole perception of the physician, like, come on, me, there's so many people that need more help than, quote unquote, I do. That's one of my flaws. I always try to compare misery. That's my, I'm like, well, at least I'm not as miserable as this, or my trauma cannot be as bad as this person because they're going through. So I would kind of negate my own feelings. Um, and this film was the mirror, is the mirror that I particularly needed to see that the person I ultimately thought I was, who I want to be, was being derailed. Like, full speed off the track and like off a cliff fast. And I think mentally there's a lot of other things that this film uncovered for me outside of my job too, that I need to work on. And I think when people really take out, Oh, the COVID perspective out of it and just see a lot of us have sometimes the same concerns about our families, our responsibilities, what we aspire for our life to look like. Because you see that in the film. These are all themes that you can see in the film. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. One of the first things I want to take it back to. So you're a black woman, you're a medical doctor, you're working in internal medicine in America. uh, I looked it up. There's, I think, less than 3% of all American doctors or black women. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can walk us through like, did like the story of you becoming a doctor? Like, was this something that you always wanted to be like, how young were you when you knew that this was what you wanted to do with your life? So I'm unfortunately one of those people, like ever since I was younger, <laughs> I wanted to be a doctor and help people. All right. I'm not going to lie. So I did know I wanted to be a physician early on, I think like middle school. And plus I have Haitian parents. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'm first generation American. Mm-hmm. So in the Caribbean, there are only but so many professions. It's like engineering, being a physician, a lawyer. lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah, these are the right. You get five. That, you get five things. Here they are. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. that's pretty much is spoken in the household. Mm-hmm. Like, um, but for me, I actually enjoyed math and science. And when I was growing up, there was Bill Nye the Science Guy. Mm-hmm. I had the, <laughs> the Magic School Bus that made <laughs> science interesting and like cool. And and for me, um, looking back now, I think. Another reason why I became a doctor is because I knew it would give me this platform, whether I quote unquote deserved it or not, because when there's a prestige that comes with becoming a physician, right? So 
I know a lot of stuff was stacked against me, right? Uh, I'm Black. I'm a woman. My parents are from Haiti, which is like the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. I'm from the Bronx. that has like one of the worst health outcomes like in New York. And I felt being a physician would give me a platform to, to have people listen to me yeah. to some degree. Mm. Um, I felt that it would allow me to meet people in so many different facets of their life because guess what? Rich people get sick. Poor people get sick. Different races get sick. So that for me was my ticket into spaces that I felt I wouldn't be otherwise. And I was the first person in my family going on that track of becoming a physician. So that too, trying to make your family proud to be the first to, I don't know, have that aspect as well, I think played a role um, to some degree um, to pursuing this career. It's a big fucking deal. And it's also hard. Like becoming a doctor oh. is to talk about that. See all the shit you went through to have this job. <laughs> so... <laughs> Remember, I'm the first in my family, and apparently I didn't do enough mentoring, I guess, of what it truly is like to embark on this journey of becoming a physician. To be honest, I actually took a break after going to college um, into medical school. So I took two years off, and my parents were so (laughs) pissed off. (laughs) What? Does this mean you're not going to be a uh-huh. doctor? You just quit. So that was the first. You mean they didn't know what a gap year was? Oh. They didn't <laughs> yeah. know. Like, this is what people do when they don't go through. That's it. They get derailed. And so then I actually, because I knew I wanted to do medicine and also to like appease my parents. So I became a, a medical assistant to an internist um, who had his own private practice on Madison Avenue, like the cross section of East 57th Street. So I'm like, oh, this is fancy. Mm-hmm. Didn't, so it's more of, I guess, a concierge medicine kind of a thing because he didn't accept insurance. So a lot of patients were paying out of pocket or then I guess reimbur- getting reimbursed from the back end. But he did have some patients where he had like pro bono or some other payment plan. But so I did that for two years. And I think that was an amazing experience. And I think that also helped me say like, you know, being a doctor is, is my calling because I saw how he practiced medicine because he did have the luxury of doing concierge. Your physical, your annual physical was an hour and 30 minutes. The first 45 minutes was literally just talking. Wow. Like he would have the patients with him and they were in his office just having a conversation. So that really opened my eyes saying like, okay, this is a great experience. Like his patients loved him. But then I saw a lot of them did not look like me. (laughs) A lot of the patients that he had, they were great, but I also felt to some degree the people who needed this type of doctor were not, this was not accessible to them. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you, okay, so you go to, you do your undergrad and then you go and you intern for a couple of years at a concierge medical practice. You see like healthcare being delivered if we had all the time and the money in the world and enough doctors to go around. And then you go back and you finish medical school and you go and do your residency. And I'm assuming you go into this and you are probably after doing that internship, like somewhat optimistic about what your job is going to look like and what you're going to be able to do. Is that like fair to say? Like you're you're probably going into this like feeling like you're like you have a taste of like how you can practice medicine. Or am I off? Honestly, when I really really look back, first like my first year of medical school, I started to realize no one told me how isolating medicine truly is in terms of training, mm-hmm. because you start seeing that. A lot what medicine does at times, it's so rooted in like tradition per se. Yeah. And this sometimes ritualistic thing that despite society changing and evolving, we're stuck on this. Oh, well, we've been doing this for so long and we've been getting some good results. So why change it? And I do think now a lot of the curriculum in medical schools, they are realizing um, there needs to be more real world application. But when I, when I was going through it, I started realizing, remember, because a lot of my family members don't get the healthcare that I'm actually practicing, like that are being taught. So going into residency, you have this, well, I'm going to be the person that changes things. So you start embodying this, well, I know both sides of the coin. So I can be that mediator. I can be the one that like helps my patients, but then also gets the job done because I know what the facilities want from me. So you have that perception and residency, woo-wee. especially intern year, you learn real quickly that you, well, for me, let me just speak for me. The feeling is, I'm not the priority at all. You start realizing that the focus, yes, is our patients and providing health care. But then you realize these programs, in order to get funding, they got to make sure X, Y, Z happens you, in terms of like your, your curriculum, your test scores, your all that other stuff, that performance, performance is more important than how I'm feeling or how my life outside of me practicing medicine. So in residency, you start seeing that to be a physician, that is all encompassing. That that needs to take over majority, if not all of your life. Well, and being a physician is, again, it's what? It's like being superhuman, right? It's being a robot, essentially, right? It's memorizing facts. It's being able to not sleep. It's being able to do well in tests. It's not necessarily testing for humanity. It's testing. I mean, it's it's interesting because medicine is like diagnostics are being taken over by robots, right? Because that's what is typically what when we think of like what a doctor does or is supposed to do, it's typically to be essentially like a robot, right? To not, you know, make a misdiagnosis, to be able to like attend to all your patients, to do all your paperwork, to, you know, do whatever it is. It's so crazy because 
in training and medical school, they tell you the history your patient provides you, that is the main thing that will let you know the right diagnosis. They, this is what they drill in your head. Get as many questions, be open-ended, allow your patient to speak freely and openly, and that will help guide you to the right diagnosis. The testing, the labs, the imaging, all of that is to already like kind of confirm or to help narrow what you already thought because the history tells you a lot about what is actually going on from a chronological standpoint, from the acuity, from the severity, all that stuff. However, it has somehow reversed that we don't have that time to talk to patients. So that's why we're doing a thousand and one testing. So we're shotgunning it a lot of the times and then hoping we catch something. So we're losing that communication that I think is the essence of medicine. So um, I don't know that culture of us becoming the robots, like you got whatever you got to do, just get the work done. Keep pushing on is a true detriment to us. It's a psychological game that we have been doing and become better efficient at it, that we don't even realize how morbid it could be. Because I remember in, in, in residency, we would have competition. Like, guess what, guys? I only got one hour of sleep today, but got, I still was able to have 18 patients or I didn't eat anything at all today, but we, we nailed that surgery or we did. So you start having these weird competitions of how disruptive or how unhealthy we can be to ourselves but yet still efficient. You yeah. still got the job. And in you order to provide steps. care, like how unhealthy yeah. can I be to myself in order to be able to provide care? Yeah. And that's kind of one of the attributes I kind of picked up. It's kind of unfortunate where I've become a chronically tired person because yeah, I can, I can be functional in two hours of sleep. That's what I think. Like functional, mm-hmm. like I can still, but realistically, that's not true. Yeah. Realistically, I'm just waiting to crash and burn. It just hasn't happened where it hasn't been catastrophic, but it's not sustainable. And I'm I probably lost maybe 10 years of my life. Like if especially if I keep this going. Right. So you're working, you know, and you're in a place where you're questioning the system already. And then COVID hits. And in the documentary, you know, we witness you for, really, for the most part, keeping it together. There's really only one. No, like really keeping it really, together. Really, <laughs> like really keeping it together. Like there's really only one part where you where you lose it a little bit. And you're keeping it together in the face of some like massively traumatic, beyond difficult stuff. And for folks who haven't seen the first wave, can you describe what was happening and also What's going on internally for you when COVID hits? So for me, um, because I don't want to like put words in people's mouths, but the way medicine is, we are taught to compartmentalize a lot of things in order to do our job. It's amazing how quickly we have to turn off an emotion because things can pivot so quickly, especially working in the hospital. So I can literally go from having a conversation with a patient 
whether it's, okay, you've been newly diagnosed with cancer, right? I have to give that bad news. And I, and like these patients didn't even think that was coming. They were thinking totally different. And however, in the middle of that, I can get like a page and I have to like cut the conversation short. If there's a, a medical emergency, then go to somebody else who literally ends up, let's say, coding and dies or expires. And I have to go through that situation. But yet I'm still waiting. And then but after that, I still have to go back to another family who's been waiting anxiously whether or not, I'm just making stuff up, oh, if they were pregnant and like the baby's doing okay. So then I'm able to give them good news, like, okay, their baby's doing fine. So I went from these three different emotions but I don't have time to sit in it because so many people are asking for my time. So many people are are in their own element. And who am I, I feel, to take them out of that to just insert myself in there? So I kind of got trained to hold it together or what I think is holding it together. And the film kind of shows me doing that for the sake of everyone else but myself. The film, I think, at least had mercy on my soul so that the world didn't see how much I broke down. (laughs) Because as the pandemic went on, as we saw the amount of patients exponentially increase, that holding together became like, you know how like when you're nauseous, like in the vomit kind of comes up. I'm sorry. I don't know if I can mm-hmm. say. No, no, no. We're gross. Like, Let's say it. Yeah. I literally started gagging emotions. It's literally mm. like I tried to hold it together. And then I found myself sometimes having to rush out of a room and be like, excuse me, and pretend I get a page. So, and then go to the bathroom and cry my eyes out real quick and then come back together to save face. I think it's so interesting because you said a couple of different things at the beginning, like in the movie, like you were talking about, which I think is fascinating or like a way that I hadn't thought about it, which is just just that like you're already working within your known knowns and your ability to pattern match. And you say in this one scene, you know, with COVID, first of all, there's like a personal thing. This isn't just something that's affecting someone else. This is something that's affecting you as in you're your whole world is changing. You're driving through New York and there's no cars out. You know, you're celebrating your birthday on Zoom. Like your life has changed. It's affecting you. You're going into a place of, of business, right? Your job. And that job is essentially like putting you in the most immediate danger of, of contracting coronavirus. So you have all this personal stuff. And then on top of it, you're working within an over an already overtaxed system. And like you said, I think at one point, like you had one or two folks that had COVID-19 and then it's just everyone had COVID-19. You have a lack of supplies. You feel like you're you know, working in a in, in some other country that has no sense of a medical system. And then, you know, and on top of it, like there's this one scene where you call someone's like daughter. And you tell her that her dad is fine. I think it was her dad. Yeah. And then yeah. he like he I mean, from the movie, it makes it seem that he dies in, like very, very close to that phone call. And then you have to call her and you your fucking shit is you're you're somehow I mean, I can't even like not cry talking like just retelling the story after seeing it multiple times like that. You're so composed and all of this. And I think what really struck me was 
like this is the healthcare system, right? Like this is like the system that is is meant to take care of people. And it feels like this is meant to be, I know this is abnormal, but it still is within the realm of what you're supposed to fucking do for your job, right? Which is so outside of like the idea of like the root word of care, right? Like when you look back on it, how did you do that? So I was definitely on autopilot. Definitely. Because if I allowed myself to think of all the dangers, both physically and emotionally, I would I would probably be admitted to a psychiatric institution, I kid you not. Because especially in the beginning of the pandemic, where there were like PPE was pretty much a rare commodity, even in the hospital, okay? Mm-hmm. Where we, because this is the first time physicians were truly in danger while also doing work. Yeah, we have patients who have tuberculosis, which is another respiratory um, disease, but we know how to take care of it. We have enough for that because there's not that many patients that we typically see. But when we have the amount of patients, the volume, and then PPE was literally, man, like you couldn't find any. And then when you did, like sometimes you had to hold on dearly. We were wearing the same mask for maybe two weeks, so because we just wanted to make sure at least we had a mask because um, we weren't sure when the next shipment was. And then the way things were spread out initially is that like the mask would be under lock and key here, but then the the gowns would be at another portion of the like the hospital unit. So we're running around, um, which can sometimes delay care that for patients who need it. So you have that emotional toll and physical like running around, like mm-hmm. and then wearing two masks, wearing a gown, you're sweating up a storm. And like, especially doing CPR, people don't realize that's a physical, a very physical um, endeavor. Like you're using a lot of your strength to pursue that. And we were doing that more often than we ever had been. Then you have this, okay, well now, like, let's say if I get sick and if I bring it home and this person gets sick because of me and then they die and then, and they stayed, they were doing staying at home in place, right? So if they got it, it's only, it's had to be one of the healthcare providers who, so you have that type of a worry. For me, I was fortunate that I was single. All I had was my dog. Like, so that was one less thing, but you still are fearful for your family. So you have that additional worry. And then you have the families, you're, you're holding on to their isolation for their fear, that terror, that look, that look that they give you when they're faced with their mortality day in and day out. They're, they're not visitors coming to see them to take away their time. They didn't have like cell phone chargers in hospital rooms were not a major thing before the pandemic. So like you literally were just there in your thoughts thinking worst case scenario all the time. And I'm such an empathetic person. Like that's part of my, like, I actually, I feel like I feel people's energy. I can feel sometimes their, their sorrow. And like, I, 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 I take it on. on. Yeah. 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 So, and then it's just like, so all of that is just like compounding and my default coping mechanism is I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I'm fine because I'm not, that sick or I'm fine because 
at least I'm not having cabin fever. At least I'm actually going outside the house and getting fresh air, even if it's because I'm going to the hospital. But for other people, especially if you're in um, domestic violence relationship, you're stuck at home and you have no. So I would constantly compare my emotional state and be like, oh, no, I have to be fine. There's no way I'm that depressed compared to somebody else. So I would pretty much negate or downplay my own feelings to kind of save face until my body told me otherwise, or the littlest things would then trigger me. Then the, I could just see like a cat running across the street. And then all of a sudden tears are like flowing down my face. And I'm like, I can't, this can't happen. Like, I can't, like, if this happens at work, that the littlest things, I just end up bawling my eyes out. Like, that's not okay. So, like, during the pandemic, I was definitely on autopilot. I feel like there was an external force. Like, I do believe in God. I do believe in a higher power. I think he bestowed, or he, she, they bestowed upon me that external driver because I think the if I just let it up to my internal drive at times, I would have been like, this is too much. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't have superpowers. Like this, there are times and like I know people try to be supportive and be like, you know, you're so strong and you'll get through it. And I like there were times I wanted to scream like this is not what I want to hear. Can I have a moment to just be like, <laughs> all right, it's enough. Cry your eyes out. This is, F, can I curse? I don't know. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. This is fucking miserable. I don't know how you do it. Yo, cry. Whatever you want to do, you do it now. I am here. But people think sometimes support is you will get through this. Oh, bypassing, you know? right? It's just like, say, it's like not letting you have your fucking feelings. As if like it's like you're supposed to only feel the good things and look to the good things as if it's dangerous to be there. Yeah. So this all happened and was recorded through May and June 2020, which means that George Floyd's murder was also captured on this film. And so during all of this, we see you going to a protest and wearing a mask that says, I can't breathe which you talk about it later in the film. But when I saw you coming out of your apartment wearing that, I mean, it just felt like there's double meaning that's imbued in this between the patients that you're dealing with, George Floyd. You go to a protest and then you also are going back into a hospital system that's obviously, you know, like the folks that are affected by COVID are are obviously disproportionately Black, Latino. So I think... A couple questions about that. Like, to me, you said, you know, in between weighing the the murder, but also just, you know, I mean, the whole reason that uprising happened and that reckoning and then also the way that it was responded to positively and negatively and like the, you know, the lack of regard for black life, right? And then you're a black doctor in this hospital system taking care uh, of patients. And I think to me, what you, I remember you said something like, this is the last straw. And then you ominously walk away at the final at scene. I did, I, I didn't catch that the first time, but it looks like watching you walk through some doors in heels. And it like, to me, I wonder how much that had to do. So you, you quit, right? And I think let's move into talking about like, 
You go through COVID, you make it through the first wave, you've been a doctor for eight years, you made it through residency, you made it through medical school, you made it through like so much. This is, you know, a job you worked your ass off for and you quit it. And so can you kind of take us through that decision and and also how much George Floyd's death was part of that? Man, that... Whoa, I'm trying not to. I think the world have heard me, see me cry enough, but I was broken. When, like, and I, to this day, did not watch the full film, the filming of his murder, because I can't, and I don't want to. I've seen enough loss of life to last me generations. And I remember like hearing on the news about the murder and, and especially the lines, I'm like, I can't breathe that I said, like, this is not real. It can't, this is not real because I'm hearing, I can't breathe every single day. And then people are looking at me, telling me, like, you need to do everything you can to save this person. And I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And then when you hear about the murder and you just see people just watching, doing nothing. And then you can't, I couldn't help but put myself in that same predicament, like, so you're telling me if I say I can't, it's, 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 it's a wrap for me. It's done. I'm, I'm going to be another black body that people think they can just film and that's it. No one really cares. And because before the whole uprising happened, when I heard it in the news, I came into work, like maybe like a couple of days later and most of my colleagues didn't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. I remember someone asking me, oh my gosh, like normally you're so happy-go-lucky. And they were like, what's wrong? Like, how are you, like, what's wrong? I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean what's wrong? Like a black man is murdered on film by a cop and like no one sees anything. I remember back in the day in train, like when Harambe the freaking lion got shot and killed. It was all, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's making a big to-do. But then another Black body is murdered at the hands of a police, of police and, and then it's crickets, crickets, crickets. And then I'm like, I am in two wars because I'm like, would y'all stick up for me outside? And it's not, I'm like, listen, I, like my work family, we've been through hell and back and... A lot of them I cherish and speak to, but at that moment, I was like, they see me no more than a lot of like the, like, how do you say nothing? The silence, the indifference was too much to bear. So like that, I'm saying like, a lot of my colleagues don't get it. A lot of them don't get it that there is a privilege. There is a systemic racism that bleeds through medicine. 
that bleeds. People don't know, like, when I'm a patient, it's crazy how I I try my best not to ever say I'm a doctor. I don't ever say anything because I just want to see how people are going to treat me. How are you going to treat me? Do I have to drop that I have an MD initials after my name for you to treat me differently? And even then it's questionable. So like, I'm just like, why am I even in the system? Who cares two shits about me when the roles are reversed? That's what it feels like countlessly being a black person working in medicine. But yet in the same instance, you're like, well, we've gotten this far. We have people who, like you have Dr. Rebecca Klumpler, who was like the first black woman physician in the U.S. Like there, there are people who broke ground for us to be in this system, despite the racism, who we're still trying to advance it. It's on the backbone of a lot of black bodies that we have some of the advancements that we have. Yet, here we go again, the silence. I was broken. I remember after that day, I was like, I don't want to hear anything. I was looking at my archives on Instagram. I logged off of everything. I didn't want to watch the, I didn't watch the TV. I didn't want I didn't put on, I was on social media. I wasn't because everything you hear was like, oh, did you hear about what happened to George Floyd? Did you watch the film? People are spreading the film. I'm like, I don't want to watch the film. At work, I'm hearing, well, did you hear about this patient? This patient just died. This patient just died. This patient just died. Everybody was just dying. Oh. So I was just like, what in the world? What what twilight zone am I in? So I participated in one of the protests. And that was, it was literally frontline workers on the front lines because the basis was that because there were some physical altercations, a lot of the protests were peaceful, but sometimes the media was making it look like, oh, there's all these altercations. And then the word was going out that if we wear our scrubs, because now people are being, uh, healthcare workers are revered as heroes. Right. Put on a pedestal. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To have us as like the shields, so that way there really isn't like there wouldn't be any uh, like physical assault or whatever. Because like, how would the, the optics look if the police <laughs> like healthcare workers the people were clapping at 7 p.m. <laughs> now because we're on the line fighting for black lives now. Now, well, let's see what you're going to do. So like that was honestly some of the premise of that mm. particular protest that I went to. Brilliant. Yeah. And they were chanting, I can't breathe, right? And then they don't, you don't see this in the film, but I what started, I broke down when I started chanting, I can't breathe. I literally, my breath was taken away. I felt that there was such a weight on my chest. I couldn't even talk anymore. And it was like strangers who couldn't help me. And I went to this protest with, one of my colleagues, I love her to death. She ended up doing a fellowship in critical care, but she just held me and I just, I just felt it all. You, you see that society bases a lot of people, their worth on what they do or how you can be of use because I'm getting applauses when I have my white coat and all that other stuff. But 
if you see me just being me on the street, I'm pretty much could be trash. And because when, because a pro, like I was telling, I guess a couple of my 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 colleagues about this protest, but I'm not gonna judge anyone. But it wasn't a flock of people from the job who went. Yeah. Mm. It was my one of my colleagues who went. She wasn't black. She's she's not black. And she went to support me. She came with her sister, but it wasn't a whole multitude, like the whole department or more than you would think. So I take notice of that. You take notice of that, right? So and let's fast forward to, because we thought when the, the numbers started going down that we weren't necessarily anticipating the second surge that happened later on in the year of 2020, around like the holiday season. And... At this point, I, I to this day, I remember this patient has been on a machine. It's called like a BiPAP machine. So pretty much there's a mask that covers your nose and your mouth, and it provides like pressure and oxygen to help keep the airways open. So you're able to exchange air, get oxygen, remove carbon dioxide. It's supposed to help with ventilation. And it's a step before you do intubation where the tube is now down your throat and you're knocked out. Now, in order to be in this BiPAP machine, most of the time you, you, you can't eat. Like, because remember, it's covering your nose and your mouth. And this particular patient, even when we tried to give the patient sips of water, his oxygen levels would drop drastically. And he was actually afraid to make the decision whether or not to get intubated or not, because it's been over a week. He hasn't had a real meal. He's still on the mask. He's just needing more and more oxygen requirements. So now he was relying on his children who were like maybe 22, early 20s. Okay. In my book, like babies, we're not that babies. I'm like, you know, they're adults, but making such a decision to say whether or not your father is going to be intubated. And by then we knew the rates, like once you got intubated, your mortality risk increases tremendously. And he, I remember the son and he was there because we allowed at this point for that patient, his son to come to see him because we weren't allowing visitors, but for this particular case, because it was hard to kind of describe what was going on without the, the son there. And he said, honestly, I, my faith tells me to trust in God and then doctors next. I am, I'm, I'm praying you save him. And he spoke to his uncle and they ended up deciding to put the patient, his father, and to get intubated, they said their last, because while he's on the mask, he's conscious, he's able to have a conversation. So we let the son step out and we actually intubated the patient's father. I mean, the, the patient, the father, literally minutes later, and he ultimately passed away. So that conversation was the last conversation that this son had with his father. Mm. And I, after that, I was like, I can't work. I had to t- call the chief of my 
department. I said, I can't. I said, I refuse because it's around Christmas time. I refuse to give a gift of a death certificate on Christmas Day. I like I had another breakdown. This time the cameras weren't there. I can't. I can't. I was feeling miserable. And I and when I told myself with any job or anything I do, the moment I start feeling miserable where it's now like I feel like it's becoming a part of my being, I got to leave it. I have to leave it because I refuse. There's enough misery in the world. I do not need to be like sharing it. That whole misery love company. No, I will not be contributing to that. So that's kind of when I started saying I'm quitting. I was like, after like that holiday season, I said, I'm quitting. I am quitting. So like the more I say it out loud, because I don't want to be a liar or like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I started, I started telling the whole hospital, that's it. I'm quitting. I'm quitting. I'm quitting. I don't care what happens anymore because you know what? I'm quitting, right? <laughs> I didn't even put the resignation letter yet. Nothing, right? But I said I did that on purpose. I told because then I couldn't back out. Yeah. Right? Makes I, I was like, I told everyone, like, now I can't. Like, what? it's crazy. So I said I'm quitting. And what people don't realize for a physician, there's no such thing as a two weeks notice. I have to give three months in advance. You have to? It's part of my contract. As a physician, there is no, we're quitting for till tomorrow. Like, right. no, we're out. You have to do at least three months. Huh. And then when talking to like um, the administrative staff and like my, like um, my supervisor, they were like, well, so I gave my resignation letter actually in April of 2021, mm-hmm. but my last day wasn't until October 1st of oh 2021. Oh my God. Wow. That, that had because to have been. Because they were like, because the shortage is the shortage was there. They're like, can you please stay? Like so and so was going to be in maternity leave. So and so is like this person's going part. Like there were so many different factors. And then and then you put on yourself like I can't just leave my colleagues stranded, right? Like I like them, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't want to necessarily cut ties. Like I didn't want to like burn bridges either. But I was like, I'm I'm done. I'm done. And I am so happy I did that. But right now I'm in like, Holly, I heard your episode. I'm like, Holly, <laughs> you, we are one of the same because I'm in limbo land. So I don't have a, like, so I have not stepped foot in a hospital since actually December 28th. Because what I did when I quit my job, there's something called like locum tenens which Mm. is pretty much like traveling. Yeah. Which is like traveling, like a traveling nurse. They have it Mm -hmm. for doctors. So I'm now considered an independent contractor. So I can still like practice as a physician. So I was doing the whole runaway, like out of sight, out of mind. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm going to Montana. This girl from the Bronx. Okay. <laughs> Remember Bronx. you said you were going to Montana. It's such a random place to go. <laughs> I wanted to run far, far away. I'm like, people say it's beautiful. There's mountains. There's fresh air. I'm going to be outside. Wait, 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 wait. Right? Wait a minute. Let me tell you, like, the universe of the world has, like, crazy tricks on me at times. So I go to Helena, Montana. I get off the plane. It looks like I it looks like I landed on a football field. That's how side, that's how big the airport looks. I'm like, where what? This is what people fly into. <laughs> so, so, and then no one's wearing a mask. I'm like, oh, so COVID didn't go everywhere. I'm like thinking in my head, like, uh-huh. I'm free. People running around with no mask. It's gonna be great. 
Wrong. I ended up coming in at the height of their COVID surge. I got transported right back to a scene like March 2020. Oh, wow. Because this was a 100-bed hospital. So it's way smaller compared to the hospital I worked at in New York City. And United States is not all New York City. There are more smaller towns than there are cities. Mm -hmm. And the type of resources that it's so easy for the well-known cities to get, because you see, when you say New York City is is crying for help, everyone wants to come to New York City to help out. But when you're in a small town, people are like, what the hell is this? Where are you at? I'm like, I'm not going there. And the struggle, they they had short staffing, but like everyone was so, the morale was down. Like people are like, I don't know how much longer we can take, but they were still invested in it. And I had a patient that that patient in the family like broke me, meaning because the patient ended up like passing away too. And this patient was, she was elderly, but prior to COVID, she was support like reportedly vibrant. She was traveling with her family, completely independent. But unfortunately she wasn't vaccinated. That's what they were telling me. And I don't know the rest, but by the time I got her, she was super sick and we knew that she wasn't going to make it. And the family, particularly one of the the children, had a hard time accepting it. And there was a lot of turmoil within the family about decisions and stuff like that. But then the patient ends up passing away and it was like how it happened. It just it broke my heart. Like the family, you can see how much this this patient was loved, yet she was another person taken away who didn't have to be. At this mm-hmm. point, there were vaccines, there were mm-hmm. preventative measures that could have been done, but yet another family had to go through tremendous suffering unnecessarily. And that's just the watered down version of the event, but I literally, and this is how I knew, like, I need to take a break from working. I literally left that when after the room, the patient like uh, passed away, screaming, in, screaming, running out of the hospital wall, like hospital um, hallway. This is it. This is it. They killed her. Like screaming. Mind you, I'm like. Looking back, I'm like, they probably thought this lady is crazy. We just got somebody who's crazy because this is only my fourth day at this hospital. (laughs) Fourth day, fourth day. They know nothing about me, okay? And I am screaming down the halls like, this is crazy. I'm like, I fall to the ground on the parking lot floor. Like, people are coming out of scrubs. I think, I don't know, the people who are doing surgery, I don't know. And, like, they just come and hold me. Like people I've never met before in my life. And honestly, I'm pretty much the only black person there. They're all, and this is what I'm saying. Like these are white people that never met in my life. This is some girl from New York. And they just held me as if I was a child that just needed to be consoled with the human touch. And that's what I needed. And even through this breakdown, you know what I said? I was like, it's okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I just need to get this all out and I can see the rest of my patients. I was literally 
going to see, try to see the rest of my patients. Because I'm like thinking like, because they're so short staffed. And I'm like, there's no way I can even add on to their their stuff. And they're like, no. Well, this reminds me so much of like, I think it's so fascinating. Like, you know, you knew you were probably going to quit way, way before you did. And then you started saying you're going to quit before you actually did. Like speaking it, you know, to like into existence and then you finally quit. It's the longest fucking like that's a crazy amount of time to actually be wanting to quit and to stay in your job. I don't know how you did it. Mm -hmm. But it's so funny to me because it feels similar in that way of like I surrender kind of. I surrender, but I'm going to become a locum tenens and I'm going to go to Montana. And then what like and then it's like your your pure cry is to fucking get the fuck out like your soul is like, get the fuck out, but you won't let yourself get out. You, you're like lowering it and slowly tapering yourself off. And then you go to Montana and you are like the weirdest place to go to, by the way, yeah. <laughs> like you walk into a hospital and like, it's the same thing that you're seeing. And it's just like, I find it like I had that kind of same thing and I kept on running up against shit. And I was just like, the stuff that happened to actually fully remove me from my job was just like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. But it was because I wouldn't surrender into like this softer thing that was actually that I know now, but couldn't access at that point. Exactly. So I had a contract still with them till December. So I had to go back in December, but since December 28th till now, I haven't worked. And like people ask me, so what did you do today? Like, were you productive? Like people are asking me, what am I doing with my time? Like you should be doing that. Like even my parents are like, what's your game plan? And honestly, this is the first time ever in my 35 years of life. It feels like my day isn't planned by somebody else. Like I am now responsible for what I want my day to look like which is daunting and confusing because I haven't really done that, right? Because when you have a job, you show up. There's there's already a list of things for you to do. Like this is already your time set up for and all that stuff is actually already planned out. But now I'm like reevaluating what to do with time. So I'm I'm really trying to tap into the wholeness. Like I think for a lot of us, we always want to pinpoint one thing, but one of the reasons why I even did internal medicine, because it's collective. I'm not a specialist. I don't, I, my goal is to see the big picture, right? It's to tie it all in. And I realized my mental health, the reason why I was unfulfilled is because I felt my social well-being was taking a hit. Meaning I was working so much that when I was off, I didn't even have the energy to want to go out. I was just like, yo, I'm sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. So I was suffering to some degree from the social well-being. And to be honest, this whole career in medicine, my financial well-being is a hot mess, right? So I don't don't come from massive money. Like my current student debt is almost $300,000 still, even though like I swear I probably paid already 100K. So like- that too plays a role in my sense of freedom, right? How much can I do with that much type of a debt? Or what other career can I have when 
it limits some of my possibilities. So like I'm now trying to refocus on the whole picture of what makes me, me and that sense of fulfillment, the spiritual connection. And it's been tough. I've been feeling lost at times. And like, technically I'm relatively new in my career because I finished my training in 2017. I'm only like five years in and I'm already like, yo, fuck this, right? But then I'm like, but I, I've dedicated how many years? How many years to this? And and the thing is with like being a physician, to be a, a great physician, you still, you have to practice. I can't just dibble dabble per se. So that whole thing of like, never practicing, I guess, like direct patient care. That's something that I'm really like, is that something that I truly need to do? So even now, like I quit. So I know for a fact, you will never see me as a full-time employed physician. No, no. But now I'm kind of grappling with, with so much in terms of, I love my patients. I do even the ones that drive me insane because, but there's so much tied into it because there's only less than 3% of black female physicians. That external factor is that if I leave, now what? Right? Right. I, I'm not going to, I'll be lying to you if I didn't have that weighing on me. Yeah, it's pressure. Like, that's a, that's like, a lie. Yeah. And then you have like, I do believe in legacy. I know, like, I know I listen to someone like that whole, I do think that. When all else fails, right? Like, I don't necessarily want people to remember my name per se, but remember that feeling that I may have given somebody else. Like, and then I've worked so hard. Like, I've gone to another level that my parents haven't gotten, right? Like, in terms of a family ties, for me to just let that go, I feel I'm doing a disservice to all the other sacrifices that my family did for me to even be here. So there's a lot of things tied down to. So I'm not on the other side of this whole quitted and feeling great. And like, Mm. like I I haven't gotten there and I'm praying to God, please, Lord, let me be there eventually. But right now I'm enjoying that. I don't know if it's a fleeting sense of freedom per se, that I wake up in the morning and I was able to just hang out with my little cousins who are like teenagers now, right? Because before I'm like, oh no, I can't do that. I'm working. Oh no, I can't do that. Like, so I'm enjoying this freedom of, you know, I woke up and I decided I'm going to do absolutely nothing and just walk my dog. Well, it's like a reimagining, right? Like it's a reimagining. You have this idea of what your life is, is going to look like based on these, like you followed that playbook, right? And you now, it's confusing, but it's also, and terrifying, but it's also really, I think it's like, I, I keep on thinking that I'm still like just waiting to start, but I'm just like, I've already started and this is what it looks like. And I could feel this, I could feel this loose every day in terms of like, we're not loose, but I could feel this. It's hard to get used to something that doesn't feel like you. Here's like the here's the formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that we were talking about, kind of prior to doing this interview, was thinking about how 
there are so many healthcare workers who I think are struggling with a similar question of, can I keep doing this? And there is so much pressure. What you've spoken to in terms of this is a field where there are shortages. This is a field where we need the help. This is a field where people who have, who are are in this have invested so much in all kinds of ways to be able to get here and do this. And just also the pressure from friends, family, the general public, like the putting on a pedestal, the, you know, sort of deification of healthcare workers that's happened in one way. And then like being like, oh, you're, you're amazing. Like you're this, like you've done this amazing virtuous thing, but then at the same time, like not giving any support systemically. So that's also like really hard. And like, so how did like, you know, what I'm curious too, like what were your friends and family's response when you said you were going to quit? They thought I was joking. I they're like, you're not going to quit. No way. And then I said, until I told them the resignation letter, they're like, Oh, you really did quit. I was like, yeah, I told you I was going to quit. So I think right now they're still okay. Like, I don't know if it really hit them per se, um, because it's only been a couple of months, right? Like I, December 28th, they're like, so they think this is a phase. Mm, Let's see, maybe she'll eventually get a job or like when everything, when the pandemic dies down and things quote unquote go back to normal. I don't know. I really, honestly, what I'm going to tell healthcare workers is we quit collectively. So the problem is medicine, whether you like it or not, it's a business too. No matter how altruistic the core of it is supposed to be, the fact that it became so privatized that it's a business. Yeah. And, and I'm speaking from a physician standpoint, like we complain a lot per se, but we don't necessarily do the actions to make it notice that if we don't get our demands or our things addressed that we're leaving. Some when you think about nursing, like a lot of the 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 changes in administration, especially with nursing, has happened because they have unions. They have a lot of them have that extra bargaining power through their unions to be like, okay, no, 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 we're not doing this. But as a physician, there are a couple of unions here and there, but that's not the main thing. And I'm not saying we should unionize per se, but I do think we don't realize, especially from a business perspective, how valuable we are because they do a good job making us feel like factory workers on the conveyor belt of patients. Like we're just the doers, not the brains behind. Um, Because when you look at, hospitals, the CEOs, all of them in the C-suites, they're not physicians. Most of them are business people. And why is that? Why is that? But yet when it comes to the profits and stuff like that, it's our physical labor that gets translated to a monetary value. But yet in the bigger scheme of things, we are relatively low on the totem pole when it comes to decisions on our well-being because we're not up there. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's designed. It's crazy to me how it's great that we can have, like they have MD, PhD programs that are pretty pretty prominent. And when you're an MD, PhD, tuition is free. You don't even pay for anything. 
but why don't we have an MD-MBA? Why not? So I really encourage a lot of my healthcare workers to speak up. And then I think if we came collectively and say, guess what? I demand to use my personal days. Like I, I, to this day, it's crazy how I go on for years. Like it's already in our contracts. Like you get whatever, five personal days off, whatever, sick days. I feel that these are things that should be mandatory. It's already like, it's already part of our pay. I think there's no, and then it doesn't get rolled over. So you lose it. You lose it. So take those days off. There's not enough self-awareness, meditation, therapy sessions, and all that stuff that can be as beneficial of just not being in that environment for a while. In order for the true effect of what we're trying to strive for is this mental well-being, you have to remove yourself from that environment. I remember seeing this, this meme or quote on Instagram. It says, you can't heal in the environment in the environment that made you sick. Yeah. You cannot expect frontline workers, essential workers to keep staying at a place without a break. And that and then that is something that I really want to hone in to our healthcare workers that take that time off and demand it. Demand it. Administration can figure it out. Yeah. They can figure it out how to get the coverage they need, they need, cough up the money. And honestly, there's a bill that was passed in the Senate on February 17th. It's the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act. I know it's a long, a long name, which $135 million of federal money has been allotted to help support and do research on mental well-being and the aftermath of all that has happened with the pandemic, particularly for healthcare workers, trainees, and students. So we know that this is a major issue and there's now additional funding that's in the pipelines. And I think from an individual, we now have to be advocates for ourselves and have that agency to realize there is rest in resiliency. We need it. You cannot expect us to keep going on without it. So, and I really, really encourage my fellow colleagues, healthcare workers, essential workers, and especially those who have been re-traumatized with the systemic racism because Guess what? After George Floyd, there's still been a lot of other murders at the hands of police officers. And just because it's not a major protest going on and that's being televised, it's still re-traumatizing for a lot of us. Us as in Black people, us as in terms of vulnerable people, us in immigrants. Like I have, I have colleagues, especially what's going on with the war, Right. Ukraine, like what's going on in Ukraine? You don't think that's not another trauma that's still happening? And then people are still working in the hospitals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just really, really hope that agency comes where we can collectively say enough is enough. 
give us the time to process, not just forgive and forget or just power through as if we're robots because we're not. So I really, really hope that a lot of us start speaking up and that fear of inadequacy, that fear of being inefficient or that fear of being a disappointment, that fear of what next? I won't allow myself to make myself feel like it's just me. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. someone else listening and feels the same way. Please, please, please. <laughs> um, it's not just you. Yeah. So, but it has to be a collective thing because individually, it's so easy to shut somebody down as one person. Yeah. To make you feel like it's just you, like to gaslight them or like, no. Mm-hmm. But when you see the numbers, it's resounding. Come on. There has to be a change now. There has to be. So that's what I am hoping for. I am an optimistic realist. So if that doesn't happen, well, <laughs> you won't see me in the hospitals anymore. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I'm still in this figuring out stage. Um, yeah, so we'll see what, what happens. One of the things that I think is the bravest, right, is that there's also part of the reason that you got into doing what you were doing was to be taken seriously, was to be given a platform, was to like have that white coat and the, you know, the MD and that legitimization, like through profession. I think that that in part is what makes you so brave in what you're doing and courageous in what you're doing in that you are I mean, it's not that you're leaving that, right? But it is in this this sense of like medicine is is like it's very male, it's very white, it's very upper class, it's very traditional, it's very stay the fuck in your place. And mm-hmm. I think that to in order for it to change, right, and to not conform to those same standards and to really change, not just like pay lip service, but to actually fundamentally change. I think that actions like yours are incredibly important and impactful. I think that to be able to choose yourself when there is this idea of being the caretaker of the the one that's supposed to stay and you're violating you know, all of the assigned identities that you have, both as a doctor and as a black woman, right? I think that there is, there's so much in that, in that statement of no and not this. And so, um, I am sure it's terrifying, you know, and I'm sure it is. it is (laughs) And it's like, I don't know. It's so scary. I'm like, I, I, I'm glad that I'm making this type of a transition. I don't have a kid. I'm not married. So I can still, it's just me. So I give a lot, like I give a lot of people who are able to make these transitions, even through that, like with families and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, we are our best selves. At least I like to think when we treat ourselves the best, right? We have to give each other that grit. We have to give the grace to ourselves in order to exemplify what we want to see. And I think that is what I'm starting to realize. Cause even now people are like, when people see me, they're like, Oh my God, you look, you look good. I'm like, 
You're well, like, what did I look like before? Right. But I was like, it's amazing what some sleep can do. Mm-hmm. What, like having time to think of what you value and prioritize outside of someone else's words. It's, I didn't realize how much, no matter how much I say I'm living for myself, but you still hear a lot of, of what other people kind of put on you when you're in these spaces that may not be fully you. Like, I just think that I am trying my hardest to embody authenticity in me, despite being in multiple places. And I do think I'm mainly me, no matter how I am, but that's not necessarily true. I think um, especially at work, I might be the toned down version of me. I think depending on my friends, I'm the hyped up version of me or I'm like, I don't know. So like, I think right now I'm just trying to remind myself how I was as a child. I think, I think I admire children so much because they just do whatever the hell they want to do on their mind. Like whether it's inappropriate in the supermarket or whatever, that type of, I'm just going to do it. And you're just going to have to handle it one way or another. Like I am really trying to learn from and like kind of embody that to some degree, like how I was as a child where you didn't have all of those societal pressures, all that other stuff. So I'm trying to really, to some degree, revert back to that type of a mindset where you could imagine what you didn't see. Yeah, children don't have that much of a hard time imagining something. But you ask an adult, imagine X, Y, Z. We're like, what? Really? What? Really? So that's what I'm really trying to get to. Well, I just, I mean, you're um, you're quite impressive. And what? I... Oh, I mean, that's like such an understatement. Um, no, I mean you're 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 obviously impressive. And I think that what comes across in all of this, you know, to me, it's people say this to me all the time. They're just like, This is just the beginning. I know how these transitions are, but I also just when I see you and also what you've been involved in and and you know, like just your work with Nat Geo, I mean you were you were just on like a fucking Instagram story with like the the Surgeon General. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, what? In the world? Like, so, <laughs> never in a million years. And this is why I hope people get like I didn't plan any of this. If you asked me in May 2020, like that this would happen, I'm like, you're effing kidding me, like. This is like, I'm dying tomorrow. That's if that's what that is. Like, so I just want, I think people are more receptive to testimonials more so than advice. So, you know, I just hope when people see me, they're like, yo, this chick, I never imagined this for myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't even imagine this would be where I'm at, right? So I just hope the takeaway from anyone, if they're at a place where they're just not happy with it, or I don't know, go back and try to imagine something that's unpredictable or like 
for outreach because you never know. You never know. Whatever it is you can to kind of get through because I guess when you do get to some other side, I don't know if it's the side, but it's definitely better than where you're at. I'm like, that's, I don't know, because I was miserable. Okay. Miserable. (laughs) And I can truly say that I'm, I'm getting that sense of joy back. Like Mm. I, I really am a happy person at heart and I really felt that that wasn't in me at one point. That joy wasn't there. And um, yeah, so we shall see. This has been so wonderful. I have just so much appreciation for you coming and talking with us and, you know, all of what you've done and all of what you've gone through and are currently going through. And the joy thing is just it that that's the the basic indicator, right? Like if there is no joy in the life you're living, that's like your engine, your check engine light, like your human check engine light is on. Yeah. Like, cause like, it's so funny when Holly said like the best is yet to come. Right. And my thing is, let's say the best, I don't reach that. Right. I want to be able to say, well, but I'm okay with what I had. Mm-hmm. Right. Even if, yeah, the best is yet to come. If I don't get to that best, where I'm at was better than where I was. Yep. And at that moment, I'm okay. I'm okay. So like that is what I'm trying to like get there consistently with if it all were to end right now, mm. I'm okay. Yeah. I know. I think that that is kind of it. That really is it. When you said that one part about like when I wear the when I have that MD, I'm somebody and otherwise, if you don't know what I do, I'm just trash. You know, that was what you said earlier in this episode. And I think that navigating that space, but you're not, right? But we have that idea yeah. that like without all this armor of our positions or our jobs or our securities or our futures or whatever, that it's not enough. And that is the thing that I think has been most profound about like the space, which is like, this is actually like, I'm okay if it ends right Mm -hmm. now or like Mm -hmm. staying with that of that. This is that like, like your life, your actual just living life is enough. So yeah. Thank you so much, Natalie. Like this was. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. You've been listening to quitted a podcast about quitting. Hosted by Holly Whitaker and Emily McDowell. Our music is by Michael Blumenfeld. Our sound engineer is Adam Day. And our producer is Kathleen Kissich. Quitted is made possible by us and by our listeners. To support the show, join our patron community at patreon.com forward slash quitted. Quitted.